The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in. Carl and D always a hit. Welcome to the Halftime Report, everybody. Happy Friday. I am Brian in for Scott today. The worst first half in more than 50 years. Ugh. But that is behind us now. The question is... Should you stick with stocks in the second half? Maybe go to cash. And just where is the best place for your money right now? We'll discuss and debate that with your investment committee today. And that is Jenny Harrington, Rob C. Chan, Jim Labenthal, Pete Najarian, co-founder of MarketRebellion.com. Get to that. But first, your July 1st markets and stocks begin the new month, new quarter and second half. Mostly like they went out the first half, lower. The S&P and NASDAQ are trying valiantly to avoid a fifth straight day of declines. All three major averages are now on track for a fourth losing week in the last five. It has been ugly out there recently, but maybe not as bad right now. In fact, we're seeing some of the mid-cap and small caps turn around. Markets are down, but not by a lot compared to where they were. Intel, by the way, is the worst performer on the Dow today. It has lost 3.5%. You can see that the major average is down about four-tenths to one half of 1%. Actually seeing a slight reversal in the bond market lately. Yields on the 10-year are at their slowest level in a month. They're not low where they were compared to the start of the year, but they are down. And get this, guys, Bank of America noting that globally, all global government bonds, this is the worst start to a year for government bonds worldwide since 1865. Not 1965, 1865. Jenny Harrington, it kind of Sums up the year, does it not? Out with the old, in with the new. Where do we go from here? One of the things that I think about a lot is time frame compression and that everything happens much more quickly today than it did even when I started in the business in 1994. So I had a client conversation yesterday and she said to me, hey, there's been a lot of activity in the portfolio this year. And I said, yeah, I think this year there's been more activity in the first six months than there usually is in a full year. But that makes sense because of exactly what you just said, Brian. The market has had its worst return since 1970. So we've done a lot of work, a lot of the nasty heavy lifting, a lot of the reconciliation of valuations, bringing the S&P down from 21 times to 16 times. A lot of that's done. So where we go from here, I don't think we're going to have nearly as bad a second half as we had a first half. I think that you always bet on stocks. They are the world's greatest value creator, wealth creator that we've ever had. And you need to remember yeah. that. So, hey, look, maybe we're down another 8, 10% more from here. Maybe, maybe we're up 8 or 10%. But the bottom line is that you're buying way more cheaply today than you were in January. You do not bet against this. You don't make a major pivot. You don't say, hey, this time's different. The world's going to end. I'm not going to own, own stocks anymore. This isn't as bad as 2020. This isn't as bad as 2008, 2009. This isn't even as yep. bad, in my opinion, as 2001. So I think you just keep marching along, put your head down, you get through it, you understand that it's a mathematical equation playing right out right now. Too much money went in, money's coming out, 
everything's reconciling. And I think the second half should be a lot quieter and more peaceful, you know, praying for that one than the first half was. Yeah. You know, Jim, when I woke up this morning at the ripe hour of 2.45 a.m., I thought, I'm going to make today a day about <laughs> optimism because the first second when you guys are going to bed, I'm going to make it about optimism. New second half, new month. We got a long Fourth of July holiday. God bless America, all this stuff. And so we dug through some stats. We found that when the S&P 500 is down 15% or more in the first half to a year, which it was in 32, like 39, 40, 60, 1970, something like this, it gained 100% of the time the second half of the year with an average gain of something like 15 to 18%. Are you optimistic about the second half of the year? Well, I am optimistic, and I, I share uh, Jenny's optimism. Of course, there has to be a rationale behind that optimism. And here's what my thesis is, take it or leave it. Um, I do believe that over the years to come, supply chain onshoring is just too big and too powerful a force to ignore. And it's a positive force for economic growth, both here and abroad. But we've got to get through the rest of this year. And what I think is going to happen is I do think inflation has peaked. Now, before everybody who's listening to me throws tomatoes at the screen, yes, I know. I've said that, and others have said that. Only Who can to be afford tomatoes? Yeah. <laughs> the rotten ones. The rotten ones, they sell more cheaply, so. I'm growing them. Uh, but, but look, if you look at the internals of things like inventory to sales ratio or new orders versus production in the ISM surveys, or even, frankly, commodity prices, there's a lot of reasons to believe that inflation has peaked. That in and of itself is not enough. It has to go down enough for the Fed to start to back off. That's what the market needs to regain its footing. And I do suspect that, you know, they're going to go 75 basis points uh, this month because why not? It's already baked in. But after that, if the inflation numbers come down, as I suspect, they'll have the ability to back off. So what we've got to do is get through the next two or three months until the Fed, mm -hmm. yes, I'm going to say it, pivots. And then the market can start focusing on those powerful economic forces of supply chain onshoring that I keep talking about. I think people should keep those pricey tomatoes in their basket, Pete Nigerian, because like, today is a day for optimism. And there <laughs> is some signs, not a lot, that certain parts of inflation may be peaking or rolling over. The DBC, we could throw it up. It's a huge commodity tracking ETF. It's down 18% in a month or 8% a month. I know it's not a lot considering its run, but we're trying to find some signs that at least maybe, Pete, that inflation on the commodity side is not getting worse. You've got a Minneapolis company where you are, General Mills, hitting all-time highs. There are some yeah. signs out there. Yeah. Yes, there are, Brian. And, that, and, and quite honestly, you know, we all know the first half of the year, it, it was terrible. It started off pretty, pretty awful and just continued on the entire first six months. And that's why 52 years later, we're finding ourselves in a spot like they did back in 1970. But I think going forward, I don't know whether it's peaked or not. I don't think any of us have that answer. But I, I tend to lean towards what Jimmy's talking about, about we've at least probably gotten pretty close to that point. Now, we might bounce around a little bit for a while longer, but I think we'll start to see that correct to some degree. I think the Fed will start to ab absolutely always, like they have said, and they've been very transparent about it, about data. And they will look at that data. And as they do, and as we look at the 10-year and the two-year starting to pull back a little bit, back underneath three, some of the work is getting done for them. So I think going forward, if we can continue on a bit of a positive path, as you're trying to lay out there right now, I think things can start to move in the right direction for what we're looking for. But 
It's, it's not easy, and it's not going to happen overnight, and I don't necessarily think it happens just this month of July. I think we do have a few months that we've got to look forward to where we're going to have some bumps. We're going to have some, some, some days where inflation certainly is the focal point once again. But I think we will get past that, and I'm actually pretty excited about the second half of the year being much better than what we're looking at, at least in the first half. There's no doubt in my mind. Well, Rob, it'd be hard to believe that the second half could be much worse for stocks than the first half. But hey, you never know, so I don't want to jinx anything. It's quite possible we'll look back in a couple of months and realize that right now on July 1st, we were either in a recession, a small one, or at least starting to go into one. Uh, should that make us more optimistic about investing in equities? I know that sounds ridiculous, but the reality is you often want to buy when things look the bleakest. Yes, and, 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 and things actually have to get worse before they get better because it, because it likely requires uh, some pivot out of the Fed or some peaking in, in, uh, peaking in inflation that would allow the Fed to at least be uh, a little less, uh, less draconian than they have to be right now. <clears throat> but we think we might already be in a recession. And when you look at the updates that we've seen recently to the PCE data, they show a spending decline in May. And that data feeds right in to the Atlanta's intermittent Fed survey, right? And May's weaker data suggests that spending tipped, in, tipped that GDP uh, now figure into negative territory. And when you add that negative GDP to what we had in Q1, we could be in a technical recession. Now, the silver lining in all that is it's going to come without a debt crisis, right? Absent some big debt crisis like previous recessions, um, we expect nothing like the bankruptcies that we and restructurings that we yeah. saw before. We expect to see some, but nothing apocalyptic. And, you know, when we think about how does the Fed respond to this? It's the most important question that we can ask right now. In our sense is, are they gonna stop hiking rates because of a technical recession? Probably not, because this inflation data is still pretty robust and likely to say, stay high. Yeah. Well, what does that mean? It doesn't mean you sit on your hands. It means you get ready for that environment. So I agree with everybody on this call. I just think there's probably more wood to chop um, before we have an opportunity to uh, to put some more money to work and maybe go overweight equities. And I well, think that'll happen right around 34, 3,500 on the S&P. And it just may coincide with that uh, uh, July 13th uh, CPI rating reading. Yeah, yeah. You know, hey, Jim, listen, let's hope it's not a debt crisis because there was a mortgage lender, Plano, Texas mortgage lender today, who filed for bankruptcy. To Rob's point, small, but things start small. What's your take on the risks to the second half of the year? Well, so let me let me start with where Rob was, and I totally agree that the banking system's in pretty darn good shape. I mean, we just got those CCAR results. Look, this is not where we were 15 years ago with Lehman Brothers and Bear Stearns levered up 32 to one, and you know AIG writing credit default swaps on anything that had a pulse. We're just not there. I would also, before I get to the risks, I would add one more positive, which is that if this is a technical recession, and by the way, you know NBER is the one who calls it, they're going to look at uh, jobs. And I've never seen a recession where initial and weekly jobless claims, uh, continuing claims, continue to stay as low as they have. It's just, 
it's diametrically opposed to what a recession is. In terms of the risks, I mean, the risks, in my opinion, are inflation that gets exacerbated by any of a number of things. It could be a policy mistake uh, at the federal level. You know, hey, let's do more spending. Uh, it could be the war in Ukraine spreading. Any of a number of things, but inflation, uh, for me, it's really that's where this story lies. Positive or negative is inflation. You know, Jenny, though, I get I get Jim's points, okay, about we're not this is not AIG, this is not these CDOs synthetic layered on CDSs and everything. But I worry about the consumer. And consumer debt as a percentage of household income is going up. It bottomed out during the pandemic. Nobody spent any money, but it's ticking back toward pre-pandemic highs, revolving credit, i.e. credit cards. All those rates are going up. Consumer spending is all on the plastic. Is that a risk? to the second half of the year. Facebook, Meta, one of your favorite companies, they, they what do they, they, they talk about fierce headwinds in a conference call last night. I mean, you can draw it all back to inflation being the problem, but you could also say, yes, consumer spending is the risk. The health of the consumer is the risk because what's the US economy? It's ultimately just the health of, of each of us and the way we're spending. What I think is happening right now is I think that spending is being reallocated. And when I think about this year and the second half, we know that wages have increased. We also know that expenses are up. And how those net out, we don't quite know yet. So we're just spending in really different ways than we did last year. And I think that's jarring, right? Where you, where you see Apple sales might not be as good as they were expected to be, or we're not spending as much on Netflix and this and that. But I just read an article in the New York Times this morning, and it was showing the number of people at beaches and the number of people vacationing. And it says Airbnb um, short-term rentals are still off the charts, and that and that AAA is expecting more people to drive this um, July Fourth weekend than have ever driven before. Just the numbers are huge. So I'm looking at it like a reallocation of spending, and that's ambiguous to us as portfolio managers, to the market, frankly, to the economy. So we need to see where that nets out, mm -hmm. and we won't know that yet. Um, but we do need to watch the consumer health carefully. And Brian, to your point on percent of spending as, as a um, percent of disp uh, disposable income, we both know that those numbers are still at 30 year or longer, as long as those numbers have been tracked, they're still at all time lows. So I'm not too worried on that yet. Um, we just need to watch it. It's, it's definitely to me the thing that I worry about the most as a portfolio manager, you know, the health of the consumer and, yeah. and how that just plays out. I kind of broke my own rule about being optimistic all show, but I figured I had to play devil's advocate at some point. All right, let's move on to the most important part of the market, and that is technology. Pete Nigeria and J.P. Morgan, they're going to the mat on Apple. They don't care. They're reiterating a $200 price target. That's 45% upside between now and the end of the year. It's the honey badger call of the year, perhaps. On Apple, they don't give a you-know-what. So I, I assume as an Apple owner, you like J.P. Morgan's conviction. Yeah, I do. I like the conviction. I'm not so sure that I fully agree with it, though, Brian. I mean, I think there's still all kinds of different hurdles that we have to get over before we're having going to see anything close to $200 a share. Now, can it happen sometime even longer in, in the longer term? Absolutely. But, I, you know, we started off the year. Just take a look at where we did start off the year with Apple. So it does give you some sense that 
Could we make that kind of a move? I don't think we're in a market right now that tells me that we're going to be able to make that kind of move in any of these big mega cap tech names, obviously Apple being the biggest and the baddest of them all. But could it go up a little bit higher or half as much as what they're saying? I think that's a little bit more on the realistic side. So if we could get it up somewhere near 165, 170, I think everybody would be smiling pretty big on that. But it's a matter of time. And I didn't mention this before, and I wanted to mention it now. We've seen a lot of volatility being bought of late in the VIX. So I'm not trying to bring in the negativity here, but we are seeing call buying to the upside, Brian. And when I see that, and the duration goes anywhere from July all the way out to October. So they're they're looking at least for some bumps in the road. They've been right, these huge buyers. 50 Cent is a nickname that's out there, but these monstrous buyers. I just wanted to point that out. So I think we still have some bumps uh, along the way, but on those bumps doesn't mean that we can't see some of these stocks that's why you got to be very selective in what you pick but there's a lot of different stocks out there i think right now that actually can get to highs again there's no doubt before we before we get to rob very quickly on that pete on the vix how much of that do you think is the fact that we're going into a long holiday weekend don't we tend to see these ahead of these three-day weekends where you just you don't know what's going to happen anywhere in america or globally is that or or have these been buyers for for days now These have been buyers that uh, this week alone, we had three monstrous buyers in the VIX. And I don't think they're looking for the weekend for those, you know, results, actually. I think they're going far enough out. One of them is in July. Absolutely. July 20th expiration. But they were also going all the way out, as I said, out to October. So there are some huge buyers of volatility right now. And that oftentimes coincides with people looking for the downside, right? Some of those bumps that I talked about. So I think we just have to be aware of that, if nothing else. I don't necessarily think, though, that it's just the long weekend. I think it's more about what this market delivered in the first six months and where we are as we get into July. You know, Rob, let's call it the M&M trade, right? Let's talk about Microsoft and Meta because I don't know if you saw the comments last night. Mark Zuckerberg, like, maybe needs some Miss Porter's school or something because apparently he said to his entire company, some of you shouldn't even be here, referring to the employees and talking about belt tightening and, as I referenced earlier, these fierce headwinds. That stock's down 30-plus percent in less than a year. But is there some upside to maybe Zuckerberg getting tough? I don't know. Uh, Of course there is. We bifurcate tech in between innovation tech, which is very high PE, uh, oftentimes no earnings, incredible growth, and and quality quality PE. And what I would tell you is that Meta falls squarely in that camp. I mean, it's not expensive. Um, relative to its peer group. It scores very highly in earnings earnings quality and trend. Its valuation's reasonable. It has great margins. Um, you know, and listen, you need to have somebody that steps in there and says we're going to be responsible to unlock value. I think that's the type of environment that we've moved into. You cannot focus on only revenue. You have to focus on earnings, and I think that's what Zuckerberg's doing. So I think it's completely, completely appropriate. Yeah, well, shareholders are going to call for some change. Obviously, Sheryl Sandberg is leaving the company. Zuckerberg's getting tough. They're changing their entire business model around the metaverse. We'll see where that happens. Very quickly here, because I can see now all of you on a screen. I want to get a comment on Microsoft. Who's got a comment on Pete? You want to take a quick comment on Microsoft? I know you've loved it forever. It's also had a tough yep. run. I don't think Excel yep. is going away anytime soon. I don't think LinkedIn is going away anytime soon. No. 
And obviously, you know, where they where they really have all, all the what they're doing is their competition, obviously, always looking at Amazon, right? I mean, we're talking about the web services side of Amazon, that we're always looking at that when we're talking about Microsoft. And I think, quite frankly, it's been punished too much. But you know what? Uh, you know, you, you can't really time this very easily. I think you just have to look at it and say, all right, at what point in time in the economy starts to get a little bit in some some of the improvements that we all are looking for? then we'll start to see this stock yeah. actually move back up to the upside. I like what we're seeing out of Microsoft. I think there are opportunities. I have not added as of yet, but I certainly have been considering it. I have been adding in a lot of other places, but uh, Microsoft is one that I've watched almost every single day looking for okay. reasons why I should be buying more now. We're going to do a snake draft. We're going to come back, start back with you again, Pete, switch gears. Then I want to go to Jim Labenthal this because you're making a move today, kind of a rare single stock buy for you. And if I call this company an iron ore company in the air one more time, the CEO and I literally had a conversation on the phone. He referenced me in an earnings call. I called him up. I was like, dude, I'm kidding. And by the way, your website says world's leading iron ore company. We're talking about <laughs> change your website. We're talking about Cleveland Cliffs, Pete. Why you a buyer? Yeah. I bought it yesterday, and here's why. I've always got a selective list out there, Brian, that I'm looking around, and that was one of the names. But I hadn't really been watching it as closely of late because so focused on energy and other parts of the market. But I looked at Cliffs, and all of a sudden I realized, holy smokes, are we really trading at 15 bucks? I remember this being a $30 stock. It's been this last month that's absolutely been crippling this stock. Slammed to the downside. Yeah. They're not going to be spending as much on CapEx. There's a lot of different reasons. But when you look at the multiple and you look at the free cash flow, I think this is the time now to own it. I've traded it in the past through derivatives. Yeah. I have not owned the stock in a very long period of time. Now I own it, and I've got huge implied volatility to sell against it. This is the highest implied volatility Cliffs has had. So with that, I'm able to create something where uh, right now, if it stays where things are, I will collect $1 per yeah. month against my stock position. That's $12 in a year, Brian, on a $15 stock. That's if the implied volatility stays that high. So that is something that I decided to do right away, and I'll continue to watch this and monitor where is that implied volatility over the next few months. Well, that's a nice if, 12 bucks on a $15 stock. You know, Jim, listen, I know it's been tough. We're heading into 4th of July, right? I'm going to put an eagle on my shoulder, okay, because the market needs to invest and respect. One thing I respect about Cleveland Cliffs is that, and the CNI, CEO, Little and I had this phone call, was the amount of money they're investing in America, in Toledo, yeah. that new steel plant. They're doing what they have been told to do, invest in this country, right? President Biden saying, invest back in America. They're doing it. At some point, stockholders, you know, you wonder if they're gonna wake up and realize this is a company that's doing what it's been asked to do and the market's not showing it any love. It kind of ticks me off. Well, let me, let me tell you a couple of things about Lorenzo Gonçalves. He's a huge, and that's the CEO, he's a huge believer in America. He was on the podcast that Steve Weiss and I were doing, and he's a believer that this supply chain onshoring that I keep talking about is going to revitalize a middle class in America that's been on the downswing for about 40 years. He's passionate about it, and it's a wonderful thing. The other thing I'll tell you about Lorenzo is you don't want to be named on one of his earnings calls. And uh, Sully, I have a tremendous <laughs> amount of respect for you, but you were in the cross here's last time. I will tell you it was pretty amusing, but I, I, I hope you had a laugh too. Um, look, at the end of the day, I, this I is called cash him up. flow machine. Jim, I loved it. I actually <laughs> I actually loved it. I called him up and his credit card, he goes, Brian, Lorenzo Gonzalez. So we had this long conversation. We ended up laughing and he invited CNBC and I to come see that Toledo 
steel the, mill. And when a CEO is willing to address that kind of stuff, you got to respect yeah. it. Yeah, no, a absolutely. And look, bottom line, this is a company that's generating a lot of cash flow. Okay. Now, yes, hot rolled coil steel prices have come down rather precipitously over the last several weeks. Half of their business, a little bit more than half, is, is on a fixed price contract to begin with. And you know what? Steel prices go up and down. To the comment about being American, you know, their raw input is all American sourced. They're not reliant on pig iron uh, imports from Ukraine, yeah. which, you know, went through the roof. Um, they've, they've got a great business model here. It's generating cash flow. And with the cash, they're buying back debt and they're buying back shares at these prices that, as Pete yep. alluded to, are, you know, stunningly low from where they were just a short time ago. Yeah, putting a lot of money into Toledo, which certainly could use it right alongside that Jeep factory as well. So CLF, Jim and Pete, thank you. All right, we're going to switch gears. Top banking analyst Mike Mayo cutting his estimates and price targets on a number of financial, but one member of the committee is buying banks right now. We're going to name those names coming up. Halftime is back in two minutes. Old Dominion Freight Line was built on keeping promises. With an industry-leading on-time delivery record and low claims rate, we keep promises better than any other LTL freight carrier because we treat every shipment like it's our most important one, which means we do the little things right so that we can keep our promises and you can keep yours too. That's what drives us. To learn how OD can help your business keep its promises, visit odfl.com. Old Dominion, helping the world keep promises. B2B selling is tougher than ever, and we feel your pain. If you're struggling to close deals, consider giving LinkedIn Sales Navigator a shot. This sales intelligence platform helps professionals like you engage high-value customers, drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. Sales Navigator also guides you in targeting the right buyers, highlights key signals such as job changes or which accounts you should prioritize, and uncovers hidden hot prospects so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data, enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash halftime report. That is linkedin.com slash halftime report for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash halftime report and get started. Markets trying to make a valiant Friday comeback ahead of the long weekend. All right, saying bye-bye to some big banks. Wells Fargo's Mike Mayo cutting banks' estimates and price targets across the board. Mayo notes tough EPS comps in the second quarter will turn easier in the second half, even as he lowers some of those targets. It's our call of the day. And, Pete, you are making moves in this space. Yes, I am. As a matter of fact, I decided I've for a long time been looking at J.P. Morgan. And the reason I haven't owned it, Brian, is because of the fact that it traded at too big of a multiple when you look at the price to book. 
I'm not talking about PE. I'm talking price to book, which is what we look at oftentimes in the financial world. Well, it was $150 stock. It was trading well over two times book. It has finally gotten to the point now where it's just a little over one times book, 1.3 times book. And that made me a little interested. That's why I made the decision. I don't want to have too much bank exposure. I sold U.S. Bank, which has outperformed J.P. Morgan in almost every single way. One month, year to date, six months, one year, whatever you want to look at, it has outperformed J.P. Morgan. Now I think is the time to own J.P. Morgan because of the fact that that price to book level has reached where it is. U.S. Bank's been great for me, but I'm getting out of that. And now I own J.P. Morgan. Rob, you're a bit on the opposite side. We are. We are. So uh, for banks, credit conditions are weakening. It means more loan loss reserves. Investment banks continue to struggle with uh, issuance. Investment grade down 15% year to date. High yield off 75% year to date. IPO funds raised down 95% year to date. And the curves flattening, the twos, tens, pressures their net income margin. I would say the only thing that could be a positive here is that the selling has been so extreme, it's it's oversold. Now, where, where I do agree with Pete, so that's from a macro standpoint. At a micro-surgical standpoint, we still maintain ownership in J.P. Morgan, Wells Fargo, which we added to mm-hmm. recently, and in financials, while not a bank, Blackstone. So... We're pretty confident that you can own names surgically and maybe not own the entire sector. Or Jenny Harrington, maybe not own the biggest of the big. Your take on that. Plus, I've just been wanting to say umqua all day. So now I get to say umqua. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> right. So so we own and have owned for quite some time umqua and New York Community Bank. Because to me, I learned a lesson a hard way in 2008, 2009, where I went into that period owning city. And what I learned is that when things get really tough and when you have a tough recession and interest rates are, are ambiguous, those, there is no way, I don't think, to properly analyze banks. And even, okay, I love Mike Mayo and I have so much respect for him, but like even the guys who spend 100% of their days researching just a handful of banks, like they got it wrong in 2008, 2009 because there's so much stuff that's off balance sheet and is not understandable. So for me, I need to own things that I can understand. And Umpqua and New York Community Bank are small enough, transparent enough that you can go in, look, understand, talk to the management directly and know exactly how interest rates should affect them. So that's where we are. I wanna make one note on the Mike Mayo comment though, which is, even with his downgrade, sorry, even with his price target reductions, those are still on average 30% ahead of where the share prices are now. So I don't want to overly um, spin that as a negative move that he made. Yeah, maybe l- less positive, I guess, would be the proper way to do that as well. And uh, to your point, these the umquas but Brian, of the world, you know what they do? They for your optimism, money, they take interest. It's right. It's so simple. But Brian, right, keeping with your optimism, it you is. could take that Mike Mayo comment and be like, hey, he expects 30% upside in banks. You know what? That's a great Jenny Harrington. Mike Mayo expects 30% upside in some of the banks. He expected 40, now it's 30. From A to an A minus. wonderful Jenny number. Jenny Harrington, Professor Harrington, thank you. All right, coming up. You're welcome. It was the worst sector last month, and that says a lot. Down almost 20%, but it is still printing money overall this year. We're obviously talking about energy. It's been rough lately. Does it still have room to run? The investment committee weighs in next. You seek the key, but first, you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. 
with a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today. What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones, our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Welcome back to Halftime Report. I'm Frank Holland. Here's your CNBC News update at this hour. The first lawsuits have been filed in this week's Amtrak train accident that left four people dead and hurt up to 150 others. Amtrak and BNSF Railway are suing a contracting company whose dump truck was on the tracks when that train hit. The suit says the train was clearly visible and that the truck driver was careless in crossing those tracks. Well, it looks like gambling will go on as usual at Atlantic City, New Jersey casinos this holiday weekend. Union workers have reached a tentative contract agreement with casino operators MGM Resorts and Caesars Entertainment. The union had voted to authorize a strike today if an agreement had not been reached. And if you're traveling by air this holiday weekend, you will have plenty of company. AAA says about three and a half million people are expected to fly this weekend. That's the most since before the pandemic. That comes as airlines grapple with staffing shortages, especially among pilots, and are forced to cancel flights. So far today, 270 U.S. flights have been canceled, and there are almost 2,000 delays, according to FlightAware. Brian, that's why they say pack your patience. Back over to you. Couldn't pay me to go to an airport today. Frank Collin, thank you very much. And by the way, let's hope there's enough jet fuel to fly those planes. And speaking of hydrocarbons, after a big first five months, energy was the worst performing sector in June, down almost 19%. Wall Street, not giving up just yet. JP Morgan's Dubravko Lakos calling energy a deep value sector with improving growth. Jenny, you've got some exposure in the space. Your take. We do. So here's how I look at it. I'll put a positive spin on it. Wow, energy is still up 30% on the year. And guess what? The stocks are still really cheap. You have Chevron and Exxon at 13 times-ish earnings. You have Pioneer and Devon at under 10 times. You have the MLP, the midstream space, still pumping out 6% returns and, um, sorry, 6% yields. And you know what? There is still enough, not, not enough capital being invested in this area. And the regulatory environment is a disaster. So it's very, very hard to bring more supply online, which I think means that energy prices will stay high. When we bought Devon originally about two months ago, the share price was accounting for about $70 a barrel of oil. And right now, we're still at over 100. Meanwhile, the share price ran up, it's come back down, but the share prices are still only accounting for, for oil in the $70 range, which means you have more upside. So I think that there's still a lot of room here. Much to everyone's chagrin, not everything moves in a straight line. Sure, it would have been nice to be up 55% and then be up another 10% and another 5%, but the reality yeah. is, is that's just not how it works. So you've got a, you've got a capacity-constrained group of stocks. I think either way, even if the regulatory environment were to loosen up, great. Then they can create more supply. They make money because they're selling more barrels. If it stays constrained, great. They're making more money because of the high price of oil yeah. and, um, and gas. So I think you and win Rob, either way go- on this. I'm staying put. These are great points. These are great points, Rob. And by the way, I mean, demand estimates for oil, are, they're not going down in a meaningful way. OPEC and the world still sees huge oil demand for years to mm-hmm. come. 
Listen, we're there. We're positioned exactly like Jenny, but we think it should be kept on a short lease. Everybody knows that oil is still in an uptrend because of the supply-demand characteristics that Jenny mentioned. The bloodbath in June shook out the weak hands, but you have to watch this bounce to see if it fails and rolls over. And if it does, we would be reducing. Once we hit peak inflation, um, we're going to want to move from late cycle, cycle cyclicals, energy and materials, to late cycle defensives like healthcare. And so, you know, while we're there, we're there and watching very closely to see if there's a pivot. On Jenny's point that the fundamentals are just tremendous, yes, they are. But you need to watch asset flows. You have many stocks that yeah. have great fundamentals, but when asset flows pivot the other way, watch out. We've seen it all year. So that would be my counter to to staying long if this uh, if this bounce fails. Yeah, I'm not the judge, Jenny, but so I'll I give you a chance to counter the counter. Oh, thanks. Great, great, <laughs> thanks. So. So Rob brings up an, a good point from a technical portfolio management perspective, but I think that the that the uniqueness of what's going on in the energy sector right now, I think that should let you override this. Bernstein put out a really interesting piece several several months ago, and they said, here's the base case, here's the bull case, and here's the pig case. And the pig case is basically just let it ride because the wind will be at the back of these companies straight up making money for so long, for a year, two years, three years, that you want to be in it and you want to be a little bit greedy. That's what I'm subscribing to. So even though Rob's putting forth the, the kind of technical portfolio management momentum, you know, takes them off the table, mm -hmm. on this one, I think you can actually grit yeah. your teeth and bear it and stick with this for maybe longer than is comfortable. Hey, Warren Buffett just keeps buying more shares of Oxy, despite the fact they've doubled mm -hmm. this year. OXY. All right. Shares of Micron right. dropping on a disappointing cheap. outlook. Some tough guidance there, Jenny. Thank you. The sector coming off its worst first half ever. How many times can I say that in this show? What should you expect from the semis in the months ahead? The committee will bring their take and maybe some of their stocks next. Welcome back. Like most of this market, semiconductor stocks, they have been walloped lately. The big SMH ETF, it's been a WTH. It's down 38% from its all-time high last year, and it's down again today as Micron spooks the market. They're concerned about future demand, but Pete, you own Micron shares. I'm telling you, that CEO's comments, though, were they were not optimistic last night. They were not. And the forecast was what really everybody was focused on, Brian, and that was obviously not very positive either. So there's a lot of different issues going on right now that's reflected by what we're seeing in the stock itself. I can tell you this as well, Brian. They are attacking in the semiconductor world in terms of the options world as well. So what they've been doing this past week alone, we've seen the SMH buyers of puts very aggressively positioning in there going out to August, the 170 puts, which are way out of the money. So we've seen that. That's one thing that stood out. But then this week, and it was my final trade on Wednesday on this show, was the AMD puts. And what are they doing? They're buying the July 1st expiring both in NVIDIA and in AMD, the puts. 
And boy, were they right. Both of those two stocks have absolutely gotten hammered as we've gotten just two days later. You take a look at where they're trading. As a matter of fact, NVIDIA, they really just got cranked. And so those options absolutely exploding to the upside. Fortunately, buying some of those puts and then selling them, I'm out of both of those right now. They do expire at the end of the day. I'm already out of both of those. But the last thing I will mention is Taiwan Semiconductor because huge buying out there as well. They went out to October and they were buying deep in the money yeah. puts. In other words, trying to get leverage, trying to trade something very much like selling stock. It's going to move at the same delta. So that's something that really stood out for me as well. So I don't yeah. know that it's over for, for, for the semiconductors right now. Well, Jim, here's a list of the price cuts on Micron today. Goldman, Mizuho, Deutsche Bank, Wedbush, Raymond James, J.P. Morgan, and there's probably some others. Yeah, I mean, I, the way I look at this is this is a mid-cycle slowdown. I know everybody's talking about recession, and we discussed it earlier, but again, with the supply chain onshoring and the strength of the labor market, I think this downturn is going to be short-lived. So during a downturn, chip orders go down, and that is probably going to be magnified by what was double ordering in the last 18 months to make sure you got some chips. Um, but it's something that, again, as we get to the end of the year into the fourth quarter, we're going to be looking forward at that supply chain onshoring, and we're going to be past the bulk of the Fed's rate yep. hikes. Um, so it's, you know, sometime in the third quarter, these things should bottom and you should be buying them. But let's go full Harrington today. Full Harrington, Jenny. This one's for you. All the price <laughs> cuts that I just referenced, they're all still higher than the current price. So they're just less optimistic, but still optimistic. The less optimistic. Full Harrington. <laughs> so I think what we've lost sight of, I think what we lost sight of during the last two years is we turned all these chip companies into stories. We thought NVIDIA was like a big, beautiful, unique story. Guess what? It wasn't. All of these things, they're ultimately cyclical commodities, and we need them for everyday life. So even if demand is weakening now, guess what? It's going to bump up in the future, and it ultimately ends up being just a supply-demand game on, on the semiconductors, too, on the equipment companies, on the testing companies. So what do you do? You buy them when sentiment is terrible. And right now, we're pretty close to terrible sentiment, yep. so I can, I can get behind them being higher later. And the prices of some of them are cheap now, particularly compared to a year ago. Well said. Can I say one Optimism more thing? Optimism Friday here two on the Halftime Report. We like <laughs> Hey, Brian, we just, I think it's, we just need I, the I think eagle. it's still wait. I'm sorry about that. Go ahead. I was going to say, I think it's still way no, too Rob, early to, to step into most of these. Um, typically, when you want to buy these is when uh, PMIs go sub 50 um, as a contrarian play. I, I think, you know, they've been trading weak on a relative and absolute basis. And the cyclical weaker goods demand outweighs the secular more chip penetration. So when we look at this, we own two names, obviously, uh, that, we, that we wish we uh, were a little lighter in right now. But I think if you really want to go overweight the sector, you wait till then. That's when you see the whites of the eyes and you move forward. Okay. Well, we've had a purchasing managers index and personal consumption expenditure reference, both by CHAN, PMI, and PCI. Like it, throwing it all around. All right, do not miss an exclusive interview with the Micron CEO, the man of the hour, Sanjay Mehrotra. That is on Tuesday, Squawk on the Street, 9.30. You can't miss it. All right, Netflix, the worst stock in the S&P this year. Disney, the worst in the Dow. Wasn't streaming supposed to be the future of television? So what's wrong? We'll talk about that next. Well, to say it's been a tough start to the year for streaming services, probably the understatement of the day. Netflix, 
down more than 70%, worse than the S&P 500. Disney, which, by the way, also has a theme park in ESPN, that's down nearly 40%, Jim. Are you sticking by the Disneys and the Paramounts of the world? Yeah, I, I am. And look, the market, we've talked about the sentiment recently. And, and part of that sentiment is anything that smells like there's a cash burn is a negative for a stock. Um, the streamers are investing in their businesses and those investments should pay off in the long run. You know, Walt Disney thinks that they're going to have 200, I think, 224 million uh, subscribers in about another year and a half. Paramount, which is another one that I own, uh, is projecting that they'll have 100 million uh, subscribers by 2024. But in order to get there, you have to make the investment today. And the market just is really, really short-term focused right now. So it's it's laying these stocks out because of the short-term investments. Then, by the way, there's Netflix, which has its own specific mm -hmm. problems. Still, if you can look forward a year or two, this is going to be a good price at which to buy these shares. Pete, you doubling down on Netflix calls and equity? Um, I, I don't know that I'm doubling down necessarily with Netflix right now, but I would say that but going back to Disney for one second, it is interesting, and Jimmy was pointing this out, but I think it needs even more clarity. Everybody looks at Disney now as just a streaming company. They are not Netflix. They've got a lot of different other revenue streams that are coming as part of that company. It is about 20%, but it's not the largest piece of the puzzle. So I find it really interesting that each and every quarter now, all we look for is what do their streaming numbers look like? That was the story early on, but I think now we have to look at this a lot differently. And so it is probably been hit so hard that it's probably in a position that I'm, I'm at least considering whether or not I should add to that position. All right. Well, it's been a tough year for certainly for Netflix, for Paramount, for Disney, all these guys. But we are watching it very closely. Something's got to change. You're right up next. Pete is revealing his latest trades and unusual activity. And then tonight, do not miss a special edition of Crypto Night in America, hosted by Frank Collin. That is at 6 p.m. Eastern time tonight. That is crypto Bitcoin below 20K. We're back right after this. Can we end positive on a pre-holiday Friday? Maybe. Dow's down just one-tenth. All right, time now for unusual activity. Pete, what are you seeing in the options market? Well, like Mike Mayo is talking about, kind of a reduced ver version of what's going on financials. Take a look at Deutsche Bank. This is a stock that's trading right about where it is right now. But we had some buyers of puts again today, Brian. Sorry to say that. But they were buying, uh, just two weeks ago, they were buying the July 9 strike uh, puts. Those are getting sold today, 20,000 of them. But they're also buying the July 8 puts. They're actually the very end of July. July 29th, the 8 puts. They actually bought 20,000 of those, looking for a little bit further drop out of that stock. We'll see what happens. I also have got the UK ETF. It's the EWU. I've got a buyer of 6,000 of the October 28 puts, going for about $1.15. That's what the ETF trading right around 29.35 in that sort of a range. And lastly, KWeb. I don't like doing the ETFs normally, but we're seeing more and more of this. Chinese Internet ETF, it was trading right around 32.89. We had a buyer of 8,000 of the September 33 puts going for about $3.70. So, or those are calls, excuse me, for $3.70. That's the one I'm ending on because that is the one bullish trade that I've got for you in unusual option activity, Brian. Okay, very cool stuff there. Pete, thank you very much. Guess what's yep. up next on Halftime.
It is your final trades for the week. We're back after this. All right, welcome back. Let's wrap it up. It is final trades time. Jenny Harrington, kick it off. Oh, okay, even though I'm long-term op optimistic, I'm short-term wimpy, so I'm giving you Verizon. Nine times earnings with a 5% yield, better than a bond. Gladly pay you dividend for a telephone Tuesday. Jim. Yeah, I think there might be a little caution across the board as I'm seeing it here. You know, Bristol-Myers is a pretty safe play, uh, very forgiving valuation, decent dividend yield in a space healthcare that does seem to have a nice uptrend to it. So, you know, okay. again, who knows what the next couple of months brings, but this is a good, safe place to be. Yep. Pete? Healthcare's really treated me well for a long time. I'm gonna give you Pfizer because I think on this pullback, you gotta start looking at this stock again. Look at the free cash flow. Look at what this company's got in terms of the pipeline. I think there's a lot more room to the upside for Pfizer. And Rob? We're likely closer to the peak in treasury yields than we are the peak in credit spreads. So I would say buy IEF, the seven Thank to 10 you. year treasury, and sell whatever high yield proxy you want to sell, right. JMK, HIG. Thank you all. Thank you all. Thank you all for tuning in to Halftime. The Exchange begins now. You've been listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast. You can always catch us live weekdays at 12 Eastern, only on CNBC. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com.